This is CS Book Club, and we're reading Chapter 5 of Understanding Computation, The Ultimate Machine. I'm Justin Campbell, and we have Brian Cobb. Hello. Amy Unger. Hey, guys. And Ashton Harris. Hey there. Uh, I was really excited to get to this chapter because I feel like this is the first time I've Aside from my regular expressions and, and state machines, like this is like the first thing that represents like an actual computer to me, or at least one that I've heard about before this book. Yeah, it definitely felt like this was the time when I started to recognize the structure of what we were building as something that could actually accomplish problems that I'm familiar with. I uh, thought the introduction was fun, too. My uh, grandmother was actually a computer. At the MIT labs, so <laughs> I I come from a long line of computationally oriented people, uh, and it was cool to to see that kind of recognized as uh, having a having an interesting role in the history of uh, STEM. Yeah, I, kn- I didn't realize that the etymology of computer at, at that point in time was actually a human computing things. Yeah, the uh, MIT wind tunnel. Uh, for instance, was where my grandmother worked, and all of the computations done uh, were done by women scribbling away to try to figure out what it actually meant that this particular wing shape got uh, this amount of air. You know, does that mean it's better or worse? You know, <laughs> so kind of funny. That's really amazing. It's a nice tie-in. Yeah, I found that very interesting because I didn't realize that connection either. And he he does a good job through this chapter connecting, um, you know, all the all the different techniques we do to you know the real life problems that they were trying to fix, which I thought was nice. And in terms of actually modeling this, it's not. I mean, as with like the rest of the book, it's just a very incremental addition to what we've already done. I mean, it's like instead of a stack, you have this little tape where instead of only looking at the top, you can look anywhere along. And that's a nice just little addition that gives us the ultimate machine. Yeah, I had heard of Turing machines before, and I, I had seen a physical one um, on, on a video, not in person. <laughs> um, somebody, somebody made a Turing machine that, I guess, incremented numbers or did something, um, but it like literally took had a camera that was pointed at the tape and would erase and write ones and zeros. Um, but I didn't I didn't know how it worked, and I guess the missing piece for me were were the states. Um, yeah, what did you think of these state diagrams? I think uh, I'm planning on cutting one out and having it framed. <laughs> Are you really? <laughs> no, not really. But they they definitely <laughs> approach a level of uh, of art when you look at them. Um, obviously, I think uh, we're all looking forward to the uh, multi page art coming up in ne- the <laughs> next chapter. Uh, but the uh, Diagrams definitely were um, hard to understand, but I actually found well. So obviously, you know, once you read the the description of it, like you understand an individual rule. But I I kind of felt that we were starting to deal with some problems that actually, um, well, where the the solution was non obvious to begin with, and where it was kind of hard to keep everything in your head at once, which was kind of cool. Um, if we get into that first example of, of finding, um, you know, AAA, BBB, CCC, or any version of that, um, 
where you have one or more characters followed by the same number. Um, you know, it didn't really occur to me that, oh, well, you'll just overwrite the ones that you've already checked, you know? So that, that was kind of, that was kind of fun. But the diagrams definitely felt, uh, overwhelming. Yeah, overwhelming is a good way to put it. It's, um, I think essential to have the kind of step-by-step caption of what's actually going on in there to just even be able to kind of know where to look first when you're looking at anything with more than like three circles. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the one of three circles right now. And uh, I, I honestly kind of glossed over these as I was reading the chapter and I just paid attention to the rules and the, um, the, the traces that he, that he used. Um, oh yeah. Like the column of like each step. Yeah. It broke down like the same as it would look as if you were, uh, running it with the um the step command and step method instead of run method, um. But now that I'm like actually staring at this diagram, it is fairly straightforward to read if you take the time to read it. Um, one thing that I found interesting when we first started this chapter and we were talking about um incrementing a binary number, uh, I had imagined that only the the tape would only have ones and zeros. It, it'll be a binary tape, um. But then there was a rule that when a, when a blank is read, uh, so I had the realization that like, well, there can be more than two states. Like in this case, there's three states. And then I was kind of thinking about like how I know this is a uh, theoretical machine, but you know, how does a machine read anything that's not binary? Like I, I'd imagine like instead of ones and zeros, like uh, black square, squares and white squares, or just maybe like a physical tape that has like an on and off position i don't know what you're thinking about but i'm thinking that uh our turing machine should be able to read unicode (laughs) snowman is one (laughs) (laughs) apple emoji Mm -hmm. yeah i actually came to it in the opposite kind of direction because i was just kind of assuming well uh, we're going to be implementing this a tape to me kind of looks like an array. Uh, so obviously if I'm going to be writing this in Ruby, I can throw any character on the sack. And then it was interesting to me at the end of the chapter, when we do start putting things into what amounts to binary, um, and that was kind of, I guess I kind of had the opposite journey of, uh, well, of course I can throw anything on this thing. Oh wait, that would have, uh, some unfortunate consequences. Yeah, so we made the uh, Turing machine in Ruby and whatever the determinism. Uh, and then then we asked the question, uh, does non-determinism give us anything else? Uh, I thought it was interesting that, you know, that this the Turing machine matches the deterministic final automata that can actually model multiple things at once. Um, although at the end of that non-deterministic section, he mentions that actually implementing that would be uh, too much work, so we're not going to do it. Um, but I found it interesting that the where we started um, was not more powerful with non-determinism, but then the pushdown automata were more powerful, and then now we're with Turing machines, and now we're back to, no, it's not more powerful. Yeah, and he goes through step-by-step step for different methods to add, you know, kind of almost seems like levels of abstraction or, you know, extra features to make it more convenient to use a Turing machine, but none of them provide any more power. 
yeah, convenience is just kind of a, I don't want to say it's an interesting, uh, motivation, but I can sort of imagine if you're, if you're kind of walking through the steps that a Turing machine takes, it does seem really inconvenient to have to like scan the entire tape, like scan <laughs> to the end and then go back and then scan and then go back. So you can imagine somebody thinking like, man, this stinks. Yeah. I mean, I don't make know another about tape. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, Brian, but I prefer to write in machine code. Do you? I do. <laughs> All right. That's how I build my web applications. All machine code. One bit at a time. <laughs> yes. You build Hand for five hours for that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, my hourly rate may not be that great, but... Uh, at least <laughs> it's job security. Yeah, for sure. No one else will want to refactor it. Yeah. Yeah, so we went over... Uh, I guess we can go over each of the... Um, conveniences or in or optimizations uh the first was internal storage mm-hmm. yeah i uh i thought this one was interesting just for the amount of duplication that needs to happen in order to make this work um and uh just how quickly it becomes so unwieldy um that y- you know you definitely want to be able to implement internal storage but it's absolutely true. You don't need to. I thought there was a neat symmetry to the diagram used for this example. And it kind of, I think it uh, matches the kind of cleverness of the solution to keeping memory or to having a sort of memory where the memory isn't like a stack per se. It's like where you came from. I don't know. It, it, it seemed... Uh, like using the yeah. state as the memory. Yeah, exactly. But then the paths trace back to, I see what you're saying. Yeah, the fact that it formed this neat little like symmetrical rhombus was pretty cool. So you can imagine if there were more letters, you'd just have a line from one to five or whatever's, mm-hmm. whatever's in the right for every one. Yeah, this example kind of reminded me of the, um, I don't know, computer science riddle of how to swap two numbers without using a temp variable. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that um but you can technically swap two numbers without using a temp variable uh however the solution actually relies on the fact that your processor has an extra i mean it it has to store the value that it is going to operate on so there's actually hidden internal memory so i thought this one was kind of interesting because you know, on the surface of it, a Turing machine does not, in fact, have any internal memory. But, you know, if you think about the state as the internal memory, you can start doing some interesting things. What is the riddle or trick? Is it something to do with, like, uh, like bit shifting or something? No, no. Um, so it's uh, if A is one number, one, yeah. and B is two, um... It's A equals A plus B, B equals A minus B, and A equals A minus B, <laughs> right? So, yes, technically you're not using any uh, int- any extra variables explicitly, but if you're saying A equals A plus B, the way you're able to do that and have, like, A, B 
two different things in the course of that statement is because the processor has an extra little area for it. As it evaluates A, it's going to store that value, add them together, and then resave it into A. Right. It won't overwrite the original value of A in the process of determining the new one. Yeah. Hmm. That is clever. I'm I'm picturing like a Towers of Hanoi like uh, puzzle <laughs> game where you're trying to move everything from one to the other without putting them. I guess you are using three there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to mention too is um, I found it interesting that so when we started with uh, DFAs, we only had inputs and states. Uh, and then when we got to push out to automata, we had input and a stack and states. And we found that those were uh, more powerful than, than the DFAs. And then we got to Turing machines. And I know we're saying that like Turing machines don't have memory, but I kind of think of the tape as memory. And it seems like instead of getting input, now we're just dealing with memory and not with input anymore. Uh, and it was interesting to me that now that everything is internal to the machine, it's not reading a stream of characters. It's it's just working with its own tape. Uh, that that is the most powerful solution is not having input, at least the way I'm picturing it in my head. I mean, semi-related. It has output, right? Like it can write stuff to the tape. That's true too. Um, which is like that to me. That's the big new thing. In a Turing machine, is that it? I mean, I guess you. I guess the push down automata could push stuff onto a stack, but I don't. Could it push just like arbitrary things to the stack, or could it only push things that it had read or that were already on the stack? I'm not able to remember right now. I think it can be arbitrary, think, but I don't think we ever yeah. use the stack as a result. I see. Yeah, Still, it's like when you write something to the tape, you could just go back to it later at any time. The stack, you kind of, you'd, if you wrote something with the intention of going back to that specific thing, you'd have to pop the stack until you got there. Yeah, it just seemed interesting that um, it seems like instead of feeding information into the machine, now we're writing an initial piece of information down and then letting it go to town on it, however it sees fit. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting at the uh, the beginning. Um you know, we're, we're pre-printing anything that we want as input. Um, it kind of seemed like an interesting analogy to, you know, the Turing machine having kind of a boot OS uh, that it's just going to, once you supply it with electricity, it's just going to go to town on on that small initial part, and then it can kind of be built up from there. Right. Uh, the initial tape is like a kernel of sorts. So the next uh, convenience or abstraction is uh, subroutines. Yeah, and the basic structure lends itself nicely to a subroutine. So just like kind of patching in multiple uh, multiple little diagrams in place, and uh, that's your subroutine. But it's right, like I, I think that kind of underscores the convenience aspect of it. It's like you 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 compile your subroutines into just one massive routine. Yeah, and this is kind of the, the way we think about programming, like modern-day programming is we're, we're building up these abstractions from these smaller 
pieces. But I guess the point of this is that if a Turing machine can already do anything, you're not giving it more power by abstracting those things away. Yeah. You're giving yourself yeah. it more allows power you to there. Yeah. Yeah. You have the ability now to write all these rule books um fairly easily, but the trade off is that you've greatly increased the machine size. Okay. Yeah, I I thought it was kind of interesting throughout the um these sections um about how differently uh the concept of power is being used in in this chapter than it is in you know my day to day life you know like the am- amount of copies that we need to make to make this work you know the first thing I think well okay so that's going to be a pain to change and it's going to ultimately make the application more brittle um, but if you think about the theoretical power no you're not increasing it so it's kind of interesting to to remind myself every paragraph or so that all right we're talking about academic power about the power to be able to reason about problems not actual performance in any way that i would be familiar with all right and the last two are multiple tapes and multi-dimensional tape yeah i kind of started thinking about relative infinities when we started doing this and those two sections um it's kind of fun to think about. Yep, you can fit anything that is infinitely long on something that is also infinitely long. You just, they are, have different relative infinities. <laughs> yeah, and both both of these seem like, uh, conceptually, you're taking these things that are either multiple tapes or multidimensional tape, and then just kind of striping them along the single tape. You You can break all those dimensions down into that, um, single dimension of the tape. And I guess the only real downfall from, you know, not doing one of these uh, methods is that the tape head has much, much further to travel before it can, you know, complete its computation. Yeah, but it can still still do it. <laughs> that it can. And then we get to general purpose machines. I think this is what you're mentioning, you, uh, Amy, about breaking it back down to binary. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting to see how, in order to reserve, in order to ensure that there won't be any conflicts, we essentially have to jam our entire Turing machine into, uh, binary or, or some other limited character set. Um, it, it was kind of interesting to, thereby kind of see a, a different reason for why one might use binary. You know, I mean, a, one that is not limited by our physical reality and one that's more just for logical purposes, binary works fine. Yeah, he mentions that, you know, compu- like we're making this computer in a way that, the, the Turing machine in a way that's going to solve a specific problem, but um, our real goal is to provide a general purpose way to solve problems and then that can be programmed which is essentially what we're doing but i guess one one level higher um and i also found really interesting the note about how we can simulate dfa um but then we can also write a machine that can simulate any dfa and those are not the same thing yeah i also like that note and i had to highlight that he points out that a turing machine is just a dfa with a tape attached which i thought was uh, a nice sum up and that's it for part one, right? Yeah, I think so. Yep. We made it. 
Universal Turing Machines. Um, I'm really excited to get into uh, the next chapters and Lambda Calculus. Yeah, is the next chapter we're reading the programming with nothing? Yes. Yep. How is that possible? We'll find out. <laughs> Tune in next time. Uh, so yeah, uh, you can hear this episode and other ones at csbookclub.com slash understanding-computation. And uh, yep, next up will be Programming with Nothing. See ya. Bye. See ya. Bye.